whereas philosophy is certainly not self-expression. And philosophy, of course, is argument. Uh, and you can say, well, is the conclusion true or is the argument valid? Welcome to Five Questions, the podcast where we don't ask if the conclusion's true or the argument valid, but what they say about you. I'm your host, Kieran Setia. In each episode, I ask a philosopher five questions about themselves. There are two ground rules. One is that follow-ups are allowed. The other is that the question I'm about to ask doesn't count as one of the five. So could you introduce yourself, tell us a bit about who you are and what kind of philosophical work you do? Thanks, Kieran, for for interrogating me. My name is Laura Ritchie. I'm the Lewis E. Loeb Collegiate Professor at Philosophy at the University of Michigan, uh, where I've been since 2008. Before that, I was at your your colleague at Pitt. I self-identify primarily as a philosopher of physics uh, with special focus on quantum theories of matter, which I love because they're so thinky, they're so hard to make sense of, they're so rich in sort of ground level foundations of physics problems. And I think there's lots of really fruitful feedback loops between engaging those and engaging sort of broader, enduring philosophical questions about the nature of scientific understanding or indeed about whether the success of a scientific theory licenses us to believe what it says about the world. So most of my publications are in that vein. I've also got a line in writing about kind of the multiply ambiguous ways to hear the question of what it is to do good science in light of the fact that science is something that humans with contingent histories pursue, humans who understand themselves and each other by way of social identities and social categories that are conditioned by by social structures. And um, this might be the oddest of all. As a senior in college, by accident, I won a scholarship that was good for a degree at Oxford, and I devoted that degree to working on Plato's Timaeus with John Ackrell. So I've never published about Plato or ancient philosophy, but I've got an abiding interest in it, and I teach it whenever anybody gives me the excuse to. And also at Oxford, I met Iris Murdoch. Well, you have to tell us about meeting Iris Murdoch. (laughs) I met Iris Murdoch. They were systematic of the warden of New College. I went to a college called New College that was founded in 1379. The warden invited all the graduate students in small sets to lunch. And Iris Murdoch was my lunch companion. This is the late 80s. I think she might have been slipping a little bit already because what she wanted to talk about wasn't resonances between the Timaeus, which makes use of a kind of tripartite metaphysical structure of uh, reason, necessity, and space, and uh, a sort of Christian trinity. She didn't want to talk about resonance or similarity. She wanted to talk about the possibility that the Christian trinity had influenced the Timaeus, which seemed to me to involve sort of time travel paradoxes. So we had a kind of loopy conversation over lunch and then doing laps at the new college garden. And John Bailey was along too. But yeah, it was a really cool experience. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm filled with envy that you got to meet her and, and talk to her. I'm going to, I have a question about the Timaeus that Maybe maybe questions about your path into philosophy and into philosophy of physics in particular will come up later, in which case feel free to say, let's talk about that later. But, you know, t- the Timaeus is Plato's dialogue about cosmology. So if you're exactly. going to find philosophy of physics in Plato, this might be where you'd look for it. I mean, w- was it connected with your interest in physics? Did you f- do you feel like there's a kind of continuity there? 
Oh, exactly. Yeah, very, very much so. And that Plato wrote a dialogue that looks like it's about cosmology is super interesting, given things he says has Socrates say in the middle dialogues. There's a stretch of the Phaedo where Socrates does a kind of intellectual autobiography where he talks about natural science. And he said, I tried to go into it at one time, but it wasn't for me. It asked the wrong sorts of questions. So if natural science asks the wrong sorts of questions, why write an entire dialogue? giving a, a cosmology. So I thought the dialogue was interesting for that reason. And um, I got into philosophy, again, by accident, um, thanks to taking a first year seminar in college on Zeno's paradoxes in an attempt to fulfill my mathematics requirement. I hated mathematics, I thought. And the seminar on Zeno's paradoxes was rife with really fascinating puzzles about time. So having focused on the Timaeus because of its interesting status as apparently a work in, in physics, I was naturally drawn to the role time plays there. Well, you say you hated math, you thought. Yeah. Like, did you discover later that you liked math? I did. I did. I think I just hated the way I was taught math. And I hated the sense of what it was to be good at math that the people who understood themselves as good at math were projecting. It seemed very unimaginative. <laughs> but when I was a senior in high school, I had a calculus teacher who we called Party Joe Mercer because he often smelled of weed and <laughs> would go off on tangents. And like one day in calculus class, he just started riffing about Russell's paradox. And um, my problem set that day, I solved the calculus problems, but on the margin, I wrote out a solution to Russell's paradox that was like very naive and clumsy sort of intuitionist response to Russell's paradox. But uh, it made me think, yeah, maybe there's more to math than joylessly grinding through algorithms to give answers. And I think in college, I came to fully appreciate that math was much more interesting than I'd given it credit for as a, a judgmental high school student. Well, I, I'm sad that you, you, you sound skeptical about your solution to Russell's paradox. I kind of had this image of you scribbling it in the margins and saying, you know, Fermat-like, you know, it's too, it's too small to fit the rest in here, but I, I'm pretty sure I figured it out. But so, and then did, did you do physics as an undergrad or did you get into physics after being a grad student in philosophy? Yeah, yeah. So as an undergrad, thanks to this uh, watershed course, I took my first term, I wound up majoring in both physics and philosophy because they seemed to be the places where the questions I was most interested in were pursued. In retrospect, I wish I'd uh, studied much more math formally. I've tried to pick up a lot on my own, but there's a way you know, self-taught amateurs have totally embarrassing gaps in their, in their training that uh, has marked me. But yeah, I, I, I went from thinking I wasn't a math person, as everybody says, to, be, to being a physics major and then going on after getting this Timaeus thing out of my system at Oxford to being a philosopher of physics. Well, I'm realizing I haven't actually asked an official question yet. And so I'm, I'm thinking we should go back to Iris Murdoch telling us that philosophy is not self-expression, but also writing to do philosophy is to explore one's temperament and yet at the same time to attempt to discover the truth. And I'll ask you question one. Does your temperament influence your philosophical work? And if so, how? Yeah, I had a feeling this question was coming, and it's a difficult one for me. I think partly because I'm one of those people who conjectures that temperaments are theoretical entities we posit to sort of explain and predict and facilitate our interaction with other people. I don't have the sense of experiencing myself through a temperament. Um, so what I've tried to do is imagine like a sociologist of 
philosophy observing me in action and noticing discrepancies between how I behave and how some of my colleagues behave, and then positing temperamental features to account for those discrepancies. And um, kind of what I've come up with is the idea that uh, by temperament, I'm kind of a leveler. That is, I'm alienated by, uncomfortable with, suspicious of hierarchies and, and rigid roles. I don't know if I'll lose you if I try a football analogy, but there is this thing that arose in the 70s in Holland, this idea of total football, where everybody on the field was licensed to discharge the role appropriate to any position. They were just supposed to understand the game well enough to do what was appropriate. That seems like a much better way to organize a world to me than really hierarchical ones. This was a hilarious impediment to being department chair. Like I couldn't bring myself to boss people around. So I had to find ways to get things done that skirted having to boss people around. And I can think of three ways this might be connected to um, how I do philosophy. Each way is tenuous. One is my account of my interests makes them seem pretty scattershot. And I think they are. And maybe that's got something to do with not being too hung up on roles. Another thing is, I try really, really hard in my work on philosophy of physics to, to teach people, to present the sort of technical notions lying in the background of raising and pursuing interesting philosophical questions in a way that enables careful readers to sort of pick up on those notions well enough to, to take part. And this is kind of in contrast to how some philosophy of physics roles where it seems like there might even be an effort to seem like you know so much math that nobody can understand you. I sort of aim, if there is math, to um, make it available to the reader, which I think is a kind of leveling impulse. And then the third thing is I sense that compared to other people who do philosophy and maybe who are more really philosophers than I am, I'm maybe less concerned with getting on top of things. This sort of speaks to the hierarchy. I have a sense that some people work on philosophical problems because the problems are to them what running water is supposed to be to a beaver. It drives them crazy not to have worked out a solution. And I'm all for trying really, really, really hard to work out solutions. But in the end, I sort of feel like when it's me versus physics, I'm kind of happy for physics to win. I'm kind of happy to run up against the limits of my understanding and have a sort of story I was trying to tell to sort of collapse under its failure to be adequate to all the bizarreness out there. So I think those might be three ways my temperament as a leveler <laughs> is reflected in my, in my attitudes towards philosophy and my philosophical work. It's really interesting. I mean, do, do you, did you think that comfort with puzzlement is part of what made Plato seem attractive to you? Is it sort of gave you an affinity with, with Plato's dialogues, which often leave you in, in puzzlement? Yeah, so it could well be that I'm, yeah, I found that much less upsetting than I would have if I went to a philosophical work looking for clearly spelt out answers that I had no choice but 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 to accept. I hadn't thought about that before, but that's that's certainly that's certainly possible. And sort of in general, I like weird things and maybe it predisposes me to like weird things that I'm not expecting or wanting everything to fall into place in a particular way. And so sort of more open to wild rides <laughs> philosophically. I mean the other way we could take this is to think about this sort of anti-hierarchical temperament 
in relation to the rest of your life? So you mentioned that part of the rest of your life was your life as an administrator, as a department head. Do you feel like when you sort of discern this temperament manifesting in your relation to philosophy, if you then you know, step back as the sociologist and say, does it have a broader impact? Is it continuous with the, the rest of your life? Do you see that same disposition in other things you do or how you relate to other people? I do. And in fact, I got to this account of my philosophical temperament by thinking about other things. So, so some examples from philosophy, administration. I It often seems to me that uh, my colleagues, the departments I'm part of are sort of obsessed with putting things in a linear rank order. (laughs) And some people are very concerned about where in that linear rank order they themselves fit. And it's kind of conspicuous to me when I think about, for instance, my life as a pseudo-competitive athlete, how little I cared about how I compared to other people doing the same thing, like how uninterested I I was when I played team sports and keeping score and like more soccer. When I was at Oxford, I um, I played on the university side, which wasn't so impressive because women in England at the time didn't grow up playing football. So simply by being able to run around a lot, I was competent enough to participate. And I played as a defender and we were always going up against teams that were much, much better than us. And some of them were also like very angry at us because we were a bunch of Oxford girls. So defenders were very, very, very busy. And I loved constantly scrambling and being on the edge and often crossing the edge of not being up to the challenges the defending threw against me. And it was a foregone conclusion, like we weren't going to win, but I felt like I'd rather lose in this valiant, futile effort to keep them from scoring 10 rather than nine than win. And I think maybe that's a little bit continuous with not being in the first instance so fixated on, on hierarchies and where I fit in them. Yeah, I think being non-competitive, not comparing yourself, not just in philosophy, but in life is a sort of superpower. I mean, I think it's so disabling. And I I speak from experience to be constantly worried about whether you're keeping up with everyone else. So, well, I feel like that's getting into practical and emotional difficulties in my life. So I'm going to ask you about yours. So this is question two. Has philosophy ever helped you out of a practical or emotional difficulty in your life? It has helped me out of a patch of existential anxiety. And at the time, I was astonished that it did. So some of the background, this is maybe my fourth year in graduate school. I played a lot of competitive frisbee in a way that entailed taking long road trips and also regularly hurling myself with great violence to the ground. And maybe not surprisingly, I developed back troubles, lower back pain. I mean, it was okay. It didn't stop me from doing anything, but it sort of amplified into um, lower body numbness that started in my foot and started creeping up my body. And again, this didn't stop me from doing anything, although it made me a little bit clumsy. But at the point that my leg was growing progressively number, I decided maybe I should seek professional help. And through one of these coincidental chains of connections, I wound up consulting sort of leading neurosurgeon at Children's Hospital in Pittsburgh, who uh, subjected me to a huge battery of tests, MRIs, x-rays, even weirder things. And this was like before cell phones. So how I'd find out I was due to take another test was I'd go to the Cathedral of Learning to teach my sections, and there'd be a little pink slip in my pigeonhole saying, report for this. And 
I was told to report for a second MRI, which was bad news. I'd really hated the first MRI. It was claustrophobic and very painful to lie there. And I didn't understand why they needed a second one. But I ran up the hill to the MRI center and said, I'm supposed to have this MRI. I said to the person checking me in, can you tell me what it's for? And she must have been new or something. But what she did is she like read the entry in my chart and said, RO core tumor, which I heard as a diagnosis. I heard it as she was telling me they decided I had something called a core tumor, which like sounded like quite serious. And I, uh, I, I blanched. I went, there was a bathroom off of the reception area. I went in there, I threw up. By the time I came out, she sort of twigged that uh, maybe good customer service entailed having somebody <laughs> talk to me. So that I talked to a technician who explained, first of all, it wasn't a diagnosis, it's a protocol, it's rule out core tumor. And the deal was they'd seen a bunch of things going wrong in my lower spine, but they'd also seen what technically was known as a smudge in my upper spine. Uh, and they were trying to rule out that it was a tumor in my spinal cord. And the purpose of the second MRI was to take a really close look at the smudge. And so I asked her a bunch of follow-up questions, you know, for instance, okay, so the symptom I'm presenting is numbness, the various like slip discs you're seeing, are they enough to account for the numbness? And she said, yeah, yeah, they might be what's causing the numbness, but the smudge also be what might be what's causing the numbness. So with that picture of what was going on, I was sent in for this other uh, MRI and I'm like lying there in the tube, like still freaking out, wondering like, you know, is this the beginning of the end? And then I remembered Reichenbach on the direction of time. Hans Reichenbach has a story about the difference between uh, the future and the past, where that difference has to do with causal structure. It's very normal for one cause to have multiple effects. A balloon at a birthday party bursts and everybody attending the party startles at once. So causal forks where there's one cause and multiple effects are very, very common. But the reverse, a single effect having multiple causes, that almost never happens except in examples from the philosophy of causation literature and firing squads. So he calls this the fork asymmetry. It almost never happens that a single effect has multiple causes. And so I took real solace in the thought that the smudge was going to turn to be nothing because there was already a cause induced for my symptom, the, the bulging discs. And it really, really helped me get through the next half hour of my life. As comforting as Reichenbach was, he turned out to be wrong in this case. The smudge really was something, but not something life-threatening. So the story has a happy ending, but not one that vindicates the fork asymmetry. Well, thank you, Reichenbach, for one of the most unexpected applications of your <laughs> work in the, in the philosophy of time. Well, having talked about what must have been one of your worst moments, let's stay on that theme for question three. <laughs> What's your worst moment as a philosopher? Yeah, so this is a story I've told in print, but like, I feel like it was my worst moment <laughs> as a philosopher, so I'm, I'm going to tell it now. This is 2008. It's the summer I'm moving from Pittsburgh to Michigan, so like I'm a full professor I'm about to publish a book that's going to win a fancy prize. I'm the associate editor of the central journal in my field, responsible for my subfield. So I'm quite an established person. And I'm talking at a conference they have every year in Maryland that brings in a lot of foundationally minded physicists and a lot of philosophers. And because philosophy of physics is a subfield where the underrepresentation of women in physics and their underrepresentation in philosophy interact synergistically, of the 50 people in the room, there's like three people who are women. So it's my turn to give a talk. And it starts badly. It's the 
first talk of the last afternoon and the chair of the session decides to bring up the issue of carpooling. And so the physicists and philosophers in the audience spend 10 or 15 minutes telling everybody about their carpooling to the airport needs. And I was just like, oh, geez, I guess we're going to run long. But then the chair says, I want to keep things on time. So we better let the speaker speak. (laughs) So that was a little bit uh, sort of made me seem like they didn't want to hear me. And I started giving my talk and I was like one of the last academics to use transparencies to give talks because I like to draw cartoons. <laughs> so I was I was using transparencies and using a method people who use transparencies use of sort of successively revealing what's on the transparency. I don't know, to enhance shock value or dramatic suspense or something. So like four sentences into my talk, a very, very eminent physicist in the audience, like the kind of person who has an effect named after him, scolded me for using this technique. And the scolding took the following form. He said, don't do a striptease. So I was like, uh, and everybody like laughed because he's a famous physicist and that's kind of his personality. Uh-huh. And then a pretty well-known philosopher piped up and said, but I want Laura to do a striptease. <laughs> and uh and there was some nervous laughter, like nobody called either of them out. I felt like I had to say something. So I tried to find something to say to make it vivid to the audience, like just how uncomfortable this was for me. And what I came up with, it wasn't great, was uh, maybe we could have a vote. And then in a sort of stirring confirmation of the existence of stereo type threat. I meant to give a talk that was advertising for the main findings of my book. And it should have been a good talk, but I gave kind of the worst, most disconnected talk I've ever, ever given. And uh, like, I wanted to leave. I wanted to leave the conference. <laughs> I wanted to, uh, yeah, to leave the talk immediately. I wanted to, for a while, leave philosophy. I wound up finishing the talk, leaving the conference, staying in philosophy. But it just kind of made manifest how a sense that uh, when one has like extreme solo status, one's really skating on thin ice. It's really easy to sort of break through and fall off the kind of surface the rest of the community is sharing and feel solid solid to the rest of them. It was not an encouraging moment for me. Um, and, you know, insofar as it uh, must be the case that many, many other people are constantly experiencing many, many things that are similar or far worse. It wasn't just discouraging, like for me, Kwe me, but for me, Kwe, a member of this, this profession. Yeah, that's really awful and an impossible circumstance. I mean, when you look back now, can you imagine what you could have said or how you could have handled it? Is there is there any, do you have a sort of time travel fantasy of going back and saying something different? Yeah, I haven't got that kind of karate dream about it. Um, what I wish had happened is that somebody in the room and people looked uncomfortable. I just said, you can't say that. Like I, somebody else had um, had called one or both of them on um, misbehavior, but nobody did. I mean, maybe... Now some of them had like bystander training or something and they, they, they do better now. But like the fact that I felt like the community should be standing up for me and they, they did it. And that also made me feel terrible and alienated. But what would you have said? <laughs> oh my God. Well, I, I, I have no idea how you react in that circumstance. It's so far from anything I can sort of put myself into. And yeah, I can only wish I would be the kind of person who would in the bystander situation, have the nerve and presence of mind to, to say something. I mean, do you feel like in the, what is it, 14 years since then, things have changed, improved at all? I mean, I do think there's there's a lot more explicit and overt discussion of sexism in philosophy and of 
the idea that as a bystander, there is something you can and should do. I don't know if it's had effects that someone in your position sort of has sensed. Like, does does it feel like a a better environment? I I think it is a better environment. I mean, I don't want to like do the experiments. (laughs) bringing these two guys in and giving them their lines. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think awareness of issues and the sense of wanting to be primed to not be part of the problem is more widespread, which is consistent with there being pockets of, of tolerated bad behavior. Well, I'm going to take us away from the, the worst <laughs> moments in your me- medical and philosophical life to, to, to a, a more austere philosophical question. This is question four. Do you really believe your philosophical views? Thankfully, maybe I've got a short answer to this. What made me think it was an interesting question is that I do. I do believe my philosophical views, which hadn't occurred to me before um, encountering the question. And my excuse is a lot of my philosophical views are methodological. They're about how to go about, say, approaching questions of scientific realism, and they commit one to the method of looking at concrete physical theories in the field and uh, translating questions, say, about realism or representation or equivalence to concrete settings and trying to make progress on them that way. And since that's my method of doing philosophy, the way I do philosophy you know, sort of constitutes believing in my philosophical views. So yes, I believe my philosophical views, or some of them. Well, that makes it sound as though the views you're describing are about sort of how to do philosophy, like how to approach a philosophical question. And that when it comes to answering the question, maybe you are more tentative and either hesitate to state firm philosophical views. Or, I mean, do you feel like, do you have a sense of a kind of first order, second order distinction and that the second order views you're confident about and you believe them and the first order views about what on earth is going on in quantum field theory or something, it, are, those are, are less a matter of belief? Absolutely. Although I'm still, my, my first order views, and this goes back to the hierarchy thing, I think a possible consequence of following the method, say, of instead of giving one global sweeping interpretation of quantum field theory presented as a fairly abstract object, trying to, for all the ways it gets used and applied, trying for each of those ways to concoct an interpretation that supports it, has the possible consequence that the family of interpretations you concoct aren't going to sort of dovetail into one uniform overarching story, or that among the various interpretations that get constructed, there isn't going to be a winning interpretation that wins on account of how much global sense it makes as a enterprise abstractly construed. So the methodological commitment makes this sort of thesis available. And it's a thesis I believe. It's a thesis I believe there's evidence for from the science we have now. But it's also a thesis that there's kind of no winning interpretation of our favorite theories, which is a thesis that has interesting consequences for like what it is to understand a theory. But it's a thesis that could be overturned by future developments in empirical science, like we may at some point have a physical theory so well constructed and formidable that it does have a winning interpretation. So if I had to place bets, I'd place bets on my first order views, but I feel like they're bets that can be falsified by the future of science, whereas my views about method are views I'm confirming just by the way I'm doing philosophy of physics. Still, it is a funny kind of first order view that what you believe is Ah, there's there's no winning interpretation. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it, it has a kind of agnosticism or some kind of of sort of resistance to belief or refusal of 
a certain kind of belief that someone approaching the question might have aspired to initially. Yeah, well, people certainly find it disappointing. (laughs) Um, (laughs) There's a kind of apology I mount for it, which is there's a lesson here, and it's another lesson that's evidence for the methodological view. And the lesson is, as philosophers, we're interested in the normative and all of its guises to quote Bob Brandom. And sort of normative questions you can ask about scientific theories include, like, what virtues do they have? What virtues are they they supposed to have? And I believe the kind of list of virtues you come up with when you're just thinking of like a disembodied theory T are quite different, interesting, they're different from the list of virtues you might come up with when you're thinking about concrete theories in the field. And I actually think it's a virtue of a scientific theory. I mean, not saying anything goes. I'm not saying because there's no winning interpretation get to believe anything you want whenever you want. I think there's a pretty heavily constrained family of contenders, but I think it's a virtue of a theory to um, accommodate a heavily constrained family of contenders of ways to make sense of it because that equips it with a, a diverse toolbox to deal with the sort of challenges scientific theories face. So it's kind of like an adaptation to be a little bit ambiguous, which you know isn't the same as saying this is what you should believe when you believe quantum field theory, but it does constitute some sort of thesis about about science, that there's this virtue invisible from the satellite that uh, you can make out when you see real theories at work. And it's a kind of virtue of, uh, of constrained ambiguity of strategic semantic indecision. Well, you said people sometimes find this disappointing. So let's let's keep things downbeat with question five, which is another <laughs> Iris Murdoch question. Yeah. Beginning with another quote. It's always a significant question to ask about any philosopher. She wrote, what is she afraid of? So what are you afraid of? Yeah, I mean, qua philosopher, that's like a really hard question for me to answer. Um, I feel like the sorts of stakes for which fear or an appropriate response have to do with you know, <laughs> climate change and social justice and whether the smudge is a core tumor, um, like they don't, for me, play out philosophically. I do have a fear that maybe isn't fear I'm experiencing as a philosopher so much as a fear I'm experiencing as a member of the profession. It's, uh, I'm umming a lot. This is hard for me to express. I have colleagues and I think the world of a lot of them and even of the range of professional comportment I'm about to describe, I admire them for it, who are sort of fiercely invested in, in recognition and in respect in, for instance, if they've written about a problem and having their work cited, having it acknowledged. And like, I admire their ferocity, but I don't really want to be like that myself. (laughs) And I've experienced more and more temptations to engage in acts that amount to uh, sort of standing up for my reputation or my standing or demanding recognition. I feel like the temptation to do that, it's sort of has been growing as I age, I guess. And uh, I'm worried about succumbing too much to it. Although it's a, a, a question about my fear is like, how do I distinguish the kinds of demanding recognition that I rather like refrain from? Because maybe I feel like it would constitute a change to my temperament that the present version of me doesn't condone. How to distinguish those from the kind of standing up for um, respect that takes the form of saying, you can't say that about me when I'm giving a talk. 
yeah, that wasn't a very coherent answer. Maybe you can edit it. No, no. I mean, it's, it's, it's like, uh, you know, Rousseau on Amour Proper and Amour de Soi or something. There's a sort of sense that yes, yes. Th- there's a kind of self-respect and appropriate sense of your standing that is, a, that is fine, but it can so easily blur into the kind of competitive ranking mentality that right. you expressed an aversion to. It does remind me, but sometimes when, I, when people bring up the not being cited, I often... Um, sort of think well or say yeah that's just the condition of being an academic literally everyone yes. all the time feels cited. that they're not yeah. cited enough and that because that's just how it goes and someone once responded to me in a way that i i thought was perfect which was they reminded me of the, the scene in catch 22 when yossarian says people are trying to kill me and his, his commanding <laughs> officer or someone says yeah they're trying to kill all of us and yossarian <laughs> says yeah what difference does that make <laughs> I feel like it's true that everyone feels underappreciated and that's the, the nature of academia. On the other hand, what difference does that make? I mean, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's yeah. still true that academia is like this, that the, the incredible amount of effort that goes into writing an article or producing a book is almost invariably under underappreciated and, and right. there's a kind of there's no denying that that's part of the the condition of life as an academic but yeah no i i, I totally understand the the kind of shift you're describing and i think i share that fear that i don't i don't want to be someone right who, who's sort of concerned to manage their professional reputation on the other hand you know, <laughs> it's, right. it's, it's it's sometimes you feel like but i wrote a thing about that and i expect especially as a woman in philosophy of physics, there are all kinds of reasons to sort of think that there's a kind of social significance to standing up for your work that isn't right. just about, about you right. as well. Right. But then there's like a further fear as, of using that as cover for the bad kind of standing up. <laughs> yeah, but I really, <laughs> you can help me. How do, I, how do I distinguish the bad kind of standing up from the fruitful, civic-minded kind? <laughs> Well, maybe in avoiding answering that question, I'll say thank you, Laura, for appearing on the podcast. (laughs) Thank you, Kieran. It's been funner than I thought it would be. Laura Ritchie is Lewis Loeb Collegiate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Michigan and the author of Interpreting Quantum Theories. Thanks for listening to Five Questions.